0: Chapter three. As I was growing up, it wasn't like one day I realized my mom actually suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. It dawned on me gradually. Oh, my mom isn't normal. My mom is weird. But then again, everyone thinks their mom is weird, especially at the beginning of adolescence, which is when I started to think it quite seriously. Her weirdness was obvious. Her illness was easy to minimize and dismiss. In Ohio, the other adults around never said Clotine might be sick. They called her nuts on occasion, but they threw the word around like it meant eccentric. The topic didn't belong in polite, everyday conversations. It was to be avoided whenever possible, tolerated only when it couldn't be avoided. Since no one openly acknowledged Clotine's mental illness, no one ever mentioned that our situation, her raising me alone, might not be safe. In 1965, Clotine left the psychiatric hospital where her ex-husband, Eric, had had her committed. It seems dramatic to say, but the Community Mental Health Act that President Kennedy had signed into law in 1963 played a huge role in what happened in Clotine's life once she left the hospital. That law began the largest exit of severely mentally ill people from institutions without any community support. While the intention of the law was to address the lack of community support, the development of a support infrastructure was years down the road. In the meantime, mentally ill people were re-institutionalized in prisons and ghettos. Clotine was free to leave the hospital, but she didn't receive the follow-up support that she needed. Instead, my mom was among the women who turned to prostitution and abusive men to survive. She got pregnant twice after she left the psychiatric hospital and before she got pregnant with me. The first time was in 1966 with Edward. She had birthed him in prison in August and surrendered him immediately. Ed grew up in foster families and was never adopted. The second time was in February of 1969. Michelle, my sister, whom I met in 1998 after she hired a private detective to find her birth mother and then found all of us too. It was two weeks after she surrendered Michelle for adoption that Clotine spent the last of her money to move to Phoenix. In 1970, 14 months after Michelle was born, I became my mom's last and seventh child. I was born into a reality that I saw as fixed. Then it began to shift, and I couldn't be sure what was real. I thought I was an only child. Yes, but then, years later, no. Neighbors were trying to get into our apartment and open our mail. Yes and no. It was just me and my mom. Yes. It was just me and my mom. No, it was just me and my mom and her secrets and her illness. As a child in Phoenix, I didn't know anything different. People throw around that phrase, I didn't know anything different. But Clotine lives on one side of a gauzy sheet that separates her reality from actual reality. Before I hit adolescence, I lived on that side of the sheet too. But I started to see everyone else through the haze of that gauzy sheet. She couldn't explain to me why she couldn't see them. For example, the allergies. She told me she was allergic to things, like air. Not pollen. She believed she was allergic to the air itself, and so she couldn't go outside. She often didn't go outside for days at a time. I was allergic to milk, she told me. I accepted that, no problem, until I didn't accept it anymore. I'd be over at a friend's house, drink some milk, and not get sick. Not only that, but everything about their houses caused me to pierce the gauze. I saw their fridges and cupboards so different from mine at home. My friends were poor, like us, but somehow they had milk and maybe even orange juice in the fridge. Butter, ice cream in the freezer, bananas on the counter. I saw so much abundance. I drank the milk and I didn't get sick. Other families had something that we didn't. They were poor too, but they had food, and most of it even tasted good. Why didn't we have that? Something was wrong with my mom. She was more than just an impulsive person with a big mouth. She was more than a hothead. The summer between sixth and seventh grade, when we'd been living in Columbus for two years, two guys in suits came to our apartment and invited us to their church. I had shown up at an evening Bible class a few weeks earlier and had filled out an information card with our address. They must have read, Save Me, between the lines when they fished it out of the children's offering plate. We started to go to that church, a two-story brick building called Barnett Road Baptist Church. I met Kylie there. She was a grade ahead of me, and she pulled me into the youth group. At 12 years old, it was one of the first stable groups of friends I'd ever had. Kylie saved me in ways that church itself really couldn't. I lived alone with my mom and didn't see my other family members much at all. We had a little black-and-white TV at that time that got three channels. We didn't have a phone, no Google. Kylie was a friend to connect me to the outside world. Church provided me with friends. Youth group often took place in other people's homes, where I got exposed to versions of family life that I suspected but hadn't had a lot of chances to see for myself. I walked into homes with comfy living room furniture. Even if it didn't all match, it all belonged in the living room. My friends had sheets on their beds. One of the church members, Janine, was a frequent volunteer who had let me come to work with her for a couple of weeks one summer at the Southern Baptist Convention. She told me that she would pay me and she did twenty dollars for a solid two weeks of filing and cleaning and sticking stickers to religious literature a measly 20 bucks at the time i remember i was livid as a 12 year old i was smart enough to know i'd been cheated now i realize she was probably doing clotina a favor keeping me busy for a while one sunday later that year we were just inside the entrance to our church Janine was bending down to organize a stack of leaflets that she was going to leave on display. Clotine started to scream. Stop sticking your ass up in the air. I know what you're doing. You're trying to sleep with the pastor. Which sounds pretty crazy, and it was. It wasn't just the words she used. She saw red. She got so loud out of nowhere. She was cute until she wasn't, like a teddy bear with fangs. People could dismiss or tolerate her delusions as eccentric until the delusions twisted into some strange sexual perversion or violent imagining, until they weren't about the person in front of her. She morphed from strange to stunning, stunning as in the way a taser is stunning. After that run-in, another adult at church pulled me aside and whispered in my ear, there's something wrong with your mom. Duh! I thought but didn't say, of course there's something wrong with her. I was going to find an escape from my life, no matter what. I was getting out. I guess looking back, I'm grateful my escape was church and not drugs or petty theft. Church provided the answer to everything as long as I accepted that the answer to everything was Jesus, so I did accept it. I decided I wanted to be baptized. I'd seen other people do it, and I was ready for the full dunk. The Barnett Road Church did a full-body dunk on Sunday during the service. The baptismal font was a glass-walled tub on a stage behind the pulpit with hidden steps that led down into the font. The person getting baptized would walk down these steps just off stage, and from the congregation you'd see them appear in the water as if by magic. Back at home the night before my baptism, I looked at the white polyester choir robe the church had given me to be baptized in. We lived in the only two-story apartment we'd ever lived in, and I called up the stairs. Mom, am I supposed to wear clothes under this thing? She yelled at me from the top of the stairs. Of course you wear clothes. And then, what's wrong with you? Are you trying to get raped? Are you trying to have sex? I looked up and yelled back, What are you talking about? Why do you want to be naked under there? Of course I don't want to be. My face flushed red. The conversation ended there. I shut down and ran out of the apartment. She had laid something on me that I had to get off, like slime. I couldn't even believe her mind would go there even though I didn't even fully understand where her mind was going. It was appalling. It was the furthest thing from what I was thinking or what I was asking about. Once I hit puberty, we had exchanges like that regularly. It was absolutely common for her to accuse me of wanting to have sex or be raped. These were the kinds of moments that started to accumulate against a dam in my mind, like runoff from a rainstorm She isn't right, I started to think. We were poor, and we didn't have things, and I didn't have a dad, and yes, those things were true of so many of our neighbors and my friends at school, but something else was going on. I didn't just feel angry. I felt ashamed, ashamed of her, ashamed that she was my mom. When my sister Carol, Clotine's second child, moved in with us in the summer of 1983, we lived in that same two-bedroom, two-story apartment in a huge complex in Whitehall. The complex was crawling with kids my age, so I had friends to hang out with that summer after seventh grade. Our apartment had a front door and a back door. It even had a screen door. It was quite a decent apartment compared to all our living situations over the years. Carol was 23 years old and married to Jeff. They lived in a trailer park with their two kids, a toddler and a baby who wasn't even sitting up yet. When she and Jeff started to have problems in their marriage, she and the kids moved in with us. Since I didn't have my own bed, Carol and the kids took my room. I was excited about Carol living with us. For once, we could be there for her in a way that I knew my mother had never been able to be. I had stayed with Carol and Jeff in the trailer for a couple of nights two or three years earlier. This was a few months after we'd shown up in Columbus from Phoenix, a few months after Carol's mother blew in from somewhere after a 15-year absence with a new kid in tow. She was nice to me then, plus she cooked. Carol qualified for government assistance. And unlike Clotine, she used it. She got food delivered through WIC. She was organized enough to show up for her appointments and receive her benefits, something Clotine would never do. Pride, paranoia, and disorganization kept Clotine from them, but Carol didn't have those hang ups. She had appointments to keep with the welfare department, she went to the pantry. She smoked and from time to time, she would tell me to run down to the gas station to get her cigarettes. She'd give me money and a handwritten note and tell me to cross at the light, an admonishment that must have been a force of habit for the mom of a toddler. We didn't have a television at the time, so the radio was on from morning to night. I was 13 and always wanted to listen to Top 40. This was 1983 the year of Billy Jean and beat it. She wanted soft rock. We bickered, but for the most part, I stayed on my best behavior. I wanted us to get along. Soon after she moved in with her kids, we all moved out to a poor white neighborhood on the south side of Columbus. The house was just around the corner from Maybelline's house. Maybelline was my half-brother John's mother-in-law even though we weren't related by blood and weren't really closely related at all, I found myself at Maybelline's house often. She watched out for John's whole clan, and that included Clotine and me. She fed me, taught me how to make cornbread in a skillet. She lent me a bike, which I rode all summer. She was a force that brought people together. She even gave my mom an old refrigerator. Without which we would have had no refrigerated food for our few months in that house. That's how my mom rolled. No refrigerator? Why would we need a refrigerator? We could do without. The fridge was so old that it required weekly defrosting, or it would accumulate so much ice that it became unusable. Did Carol encourage the move? Did she have a conversation with Chloe about how moving there would be more convenient for her? I don't know. One summer day, I got home from playing outside with the other kids in the apartment complex, and Clotine told me we'd be moving into a house the next day. Loxley Avenue had houses with chain-linked fenced yards, couches on front porches, and multiple cars up on blocks in driveways and parked on the street. Our house was tucked into the part of the street that bottomed out to a dead end of trees and weeds that covered a creek. If the house had been in a nicer neighborhood, you could have called it a tucked-away gem with privacy. It was the very last house on the street, but in this neighborhood, it felt isolated and creepy, especially at night. Clotine wasn't equipped to move us into a house. Apartments come with a lot of things built in—fridge, stove, groundskeeping, repairs, trash bins— We had never needed to purchase a bin for trash pickup. She wasn't ready for all those expenses. They hadn't even occurred to her. The outside of the house was painted orange. Well, most of the house was painted orange. Someone decided to quit about three-quarters of the way through. So three-quarters orange and one-quarter unpainted white. There was a cement porch and a large picture window at the end of the driveway. A fellow church member, Robert, owned the place. He wore a toupee. He came by a few times to mow the lawn, although he ended each visit by saying he couldn't keep doing that, hoping he could shame her into finding someone else. I was taken away from any friends I had, for the most part. Not that I wasn't happy. This was the first time I had ever lived in an actual house in a residential neighborhood, and that felt big. But having Carol and her kids with us took some of the sting out of leaving the apartment complex in Whitehall and the friends I'd made there. We were finally making a go of it as a family. Jeff, Carol's husband, would come by every now and then to pick up the kids or take Carol and them out for dinner. One summer night, Jeff drove up in his boat of a car. He pulled into our gravel and dirt driveway. As Carol left the house, Clotine sprinted out after her and screamed at her and Jeff in the street. Don't you go with him. If you go with him, don't you ever come back here. I was mortified. Clotine was acting crazy again. Carol was answering, I won't come back. I'll be back to get my stuff, and you won't see me ever again. As I was watching this happen from the porch, I was shaking and crying. What was wrong with her? Why was she starting a fight about nothing? Why was she starting a fight with the only sibling of mine who wanted to spend time with us? Stop it, stop it, I shouted. Shut up, if you don't talk, people won't know you're this way. She was so humiliating. Stop it, I hate you, you're ruining my life. I kept screaming at her from the porch but neither she nor Carol paid any attention to me. They were too busy screaming at each other. Carol got in the car and they peeled off down the street. I have not seen Carol since. I think back on that fight, think back on me yelling from the porch, and I know these fights weren't normal fights, not even normal fights for abusive people or people with anger issues. In a normal fight, even a heated or drunken one, some kind of escalation happens. Both people who are in the fight have a sense of what's going on. Someone says something mean or offensive, and then there's a retort that's meaner. Then yelling. Then maybe hitting or something like that. A bit like going from zero to 60 in three seconds. The escalation might follow a steep slope, but it's still a slope. Clotine's confrontations had the notable absence of all that. She didn't escalate. She started at towering tsunami. If you could see the tsunami, it was already too late. Just like when she stuck a finger in the face of one of my childhood playmates when I was five or six. Just like when she threw Joan out of the apartment. Her paranoia made her see things that terrified her. She wasn't just angry when she yelled. She was frightened, too. She was so certain that she was justified in her rage that she felt abandoned by the reactions of others, the sane reactions, the looks on people's faces. Nobody jumped on her bandwagon. She was alone. Now we lived in this house on Locksley Avenue, alone again and far from my friends. I didn't want to start a new school. I had heard bad things about the junior high school in this neighborhood, and I was worried I'd get beat up and terrorized. We need to go back to Whitehall, I told her. I prodded her to find us a new place, and we picked up and moved, twice, until we were back in the apartment complex where we'd been. It took a few months, and it meant that I had to start eighth grade late, but it was the best I could do to introduce some sort of safety back into my life. At least I was back at the junior high where I'd finished out seventh grade, the place where I'd been before Carol came. I gave myself that stability. When I joined the eighth grade class, the teacher introduced me as a new student. She's not new, one of the kids blurted out. Yeah, I went here last year, I said. When we got back to Whitehall and I felt safer again at school, although I was still bullied, I started to hate my mom. I felt trapped. By this time, I had a lot of independence as a young teenager. I was spending as much time as possible with my two friends, especially friends from church. I was glad that they hadn't forgotten about me over the summer while I was living on the other side of town. Whenever I visited their homes and their families, I saw I could have a different life. Other people had a different life why not me? I wanted to escape her as much as I could. I even switched churches so I wouldn't have to spend Sundays with her. She stayed at our old church, but I was spared from cringing every time she opened her mouth or every time she got up in front of the whole congregation, pressed play on a tape, and started to sing. She couldn't sing, of course— That didn't stop her from singing at least one solo, sometimes more, in her totally off-key voice. She did that almost every Sunday until the pastor pulled her aside privately after a service and told her the church was going in a different direction with its musical lineup. His decision made no sense to her. Why would they keep her from singing on Sundays?